tonight in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter number 3. Ephesians chapter number 3. For the past six weeks, we've studied on the little phrase, in whom, that's found in the book of Ephesians. We've looked at six of the in whom's that take place. Verse number 7 of chapter 1 says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And I'd say tonight that it begins there. If you've never had that, you don't have anything. If you've never found redemption through Jesus Christ, you have nothing tonight. You may have a lot of uh, prominence, and that will mean nothing. You may have a lot of prosperity, and that will mean nothing. You may have a lot of power, and that will mean nothing. If you do not have redemption tonight, you say, well, how do I know if I have redemption? Well, have you ever been redeemed? Have you ever been washed in the blood of Christ? You say, preacher, I've always been saved. No, you haven't. If that's what your salvation is, then that means you've never been saved. But if there's been a time in your life when you met the Savior, confessed yourself a sinner, not a sinner like the rest either, amen, but a lowest of the low. I fear sometimes when we encourage people to confess themselves a sinner, what we're really saying is that they confess themselves comparatively to be sinners. In other words, I'm a sinner, but yeah, the next guy is too. No, that's not what I mean tonight. I mean, has there ever been a time when you recognized in and of yourself you were the only person on this earth you'd still deserve to die and go to hell? If you've ever confessed yourself a lost sinner in need of Christ's salvation called upon His name and put your trust in Him, put your faith in Him, turn from the dependence of yourself to the dependence upon the Savior. If you've never done that, you're not saved tonight. If you don't have redemption, you don't have anything. It begins with redemption. Verse number 11 of chapter 1 says, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance." So we go from having Christ to having much more than Christ. Because the Bible says He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, and that it's not entered into the human thought, it's not entered into the human mind, it's unfathomable the things that He has prepared for them that love Him. And we see that we have been given in Him an inheritance. You say, why is it in Him? Well, you don't have an inheritance unless somebody's died. That's where an inheritance comes from. And in Him we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13 speaks of, our trust being put in Him, in whom ye also trusted. The end of the verse speaks of the sweet Holy Spirit of God, in whom, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. I'm thankful tonight that it's not up to me to keep my salvation. I can't keep anything in and of myself. I, 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 can't, I, I can't keep a testimony in and of myself. I can't keep a prayer closet in and of myself. I can't keep anything tonight. I sure can't keep my salvation. You know, and I got to thinking about this, and you just forgive me if this is a little off topic, but isn't it a shame that the Pentecostals shout the Baptists down? When Christ made this statement, He said, Notwithstanding, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but in this rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I don't believe that the Pentecostals can cast out devils. But even if they could, us Baptists that are bought by the blood of Christ, that our names written down in heaven, we're not working our way there, but the work's been done through Jesus Christ. 
You know, that's what it is when it talks about your name being written in heaven. See, that's a place you can't reach to erase it. Amen. <laughs> and neither can anyone else. We're sealed under the day of redemption. And if we didn't have anything else, that'd be enough to shout about. But it says that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Chapter number 2 looks at us being in the body of Christ in verse number 21 when it says, "...in whom all the building fitly framed together." And that speaks of all believers being knit together through the Holy Spirit of God. I'm not talking about ecumenicalism or universalism tonight, but I'm merely saying that regardless of your denominational persuasion, if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and accepted His salvation and His forgiveness... Like it or not, we're brothers and sisters. Amen? But verse 22 has the local church in, in its view of scope when it says, "...in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit." And so six in whom's we've studied. I'd like for us to read in chapter 2 and verse 6 sort of a synopsis verse to this entire study. We're wrapping it up tonight, and so I think it's fitting we go back to the beginning and just look at the thought. Verse number 6, well, let's start at verse number 4. The Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Notice verse 6, And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places, not by Christ Jesus, not of Christ Jesus, not through Christ Jesus, although all those things are true. But the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. Now, that's an important distinction tonight. You may say, preacher, why is that important? Well, I can be something by someone. But that doesn't mean I'm eternally that. Something could change. I mean, I, I, I might, uh, you know, I always say, uh, whenever I marry someone... Uh, or I guess I'm performing the wedding. I've only been married once, amen. But, but when, when, when you marry someone and, that she knows about, and uh, when, no, I'm joking. When you marry someone, I, I make this statement. I say, by the power vested in me by the state of Tennessee. Well, there may come a day, friend, and I look for it to come, when the state of Tennessee is going to take that power away from me legally standing. I think there's going to come a day when uh, we'll either have to marry homosexual sodomites or they won't allow us to marry anyone. I believe, you say, don't you think you'll be able to perform a, a, a regular God-honored, God-sanctioned marriage? Yeah, I believe you'll be able to do that, but I believe they'll only give you the authority to do that if you'll also marry sodomites. Uh, you know, I have that power by the state of Tennessee, at least in legal eyes, but that power can be taken away. That power can change. By the way, if I was to go to Kentucky, I wouldn't have that power anymore. It can change. It's relative. Same thing is true of somebody. I might have something of them, meaning I've gotten it from them, but something could change. But this little phrase, in whom, tells me that the position that I have in Jesus Christ is eternally linked to His nature. So that tells me that who I am in Jesus Christ is as unsinkable as the person of Jesus Christ. So we speak of position when we talk about these things. Verse number 3 of chapter 1 gives us the same similar idea when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we learn that these benefits are 
Not exclusively earthly, but these blessings are in heavenly places. Tonight I want us to look in chapter 3. I want us to begin in verse number 8. Our text is found in verse 12. And I want us to read just a few verses tonight and then have a word of prayer. And I want to talk about this last in whom that's spoken of. Paul writing says unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12 says, "...in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him." I want to read that once more. "...in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that You'd bless Your Word, Lord. Use it in a mighty way in hearts. Use it in a way, Lord, that I wouldn't gain any glory, but that only Your Son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified. Lord, if I know my heart, and I know the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, but Lord, tonight, if I do know my own heart, I I don't seek any glory tonight. But I want only your Son to be magnified. And Lord, my heart's desire is that I would decrease, that He might increase in this congregation. Father, do what only you can do and work in hearts in the way that only you can. Help us to be yielded and submissive to your Holy Spirit and to your Holy Word. Father, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting the path that we've taken was talking to someone about this series, and they made this statement. They said, it amazes me the different directions that these different in whom's have taken us. And certainly it's true that we begin with redemption, and we travel to the things that we have in our inheritance in Jesus Christ. We go back to the cross and speak of Him in whom we have trusted. We speak of the sweet Holy Spirit that has sealed us. We speak of the body that we've been put in or the church that we've been put in. And then we narrow the scope and speak of the responsibility of every believer in the local church and their responsibility therewith. But finally, as we come to the very last one, it's interesting that we we enter into no less of a place and no less of a room than the throne room of God Almighty. When we come here, we're coming to holy ground. When we come to this place, we're coming to the abode of God, the Creator of God, the Savior. We come to a place that human heart and angelic heart has longed to see and understand, and to have free course in. We come to a place where only a select few heretofore had been allowed. We come to a place of great prominence and importance. And the occasion that brings us to this place, as Paul is writing in verse number 8, is the unsearchable riches of Christ. You say, preacher, explain that to me. I can't, they're unsearchable. We can examine some of them. We can look at some of them. But can I say, you'll never sound the depths of the blessings of Christ. You'll never come to a place where you say, there's no more. He's given me all that there is. 
He's given me all that I could ask. It's always unsearchable. And we look at the vast scope of the work of God and what the purpose is to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That word mystery describes something that had to be revealed. Uh, something that God had to make known through special revelation. Something that at one time had been shrouded, but now has been revealed and brought plain and made to be seen. And it says, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, gives us the purpose of God's plan to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold Wisdom of God. Oh, we could spend all evening talking about God's manifold wisdom. God is the ultimate multitasker. According to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. But I want to narrow our scope and just look at these few words in chapter number 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Now, I'm not going to spend very long talking about the words in whom. In fact, I've exhausted what I'll say about them. We've spent seven weeks now, including this week, talking about this idea of in whom. But as we come to the throne room of God, I want us to look at three phrases tonight. I want us to look at the word boldness. I want us to look at the phrase access with confidence. And I want us to look at the phrase by the faith of Him and examine what it means in our life. Do you know that it helps you to know who you are? Helps you to know who you are in Him. There's a lot of Christians walking around defeated because they don't know who they are in Him. There's a lot of Christians walking around downtrodden and downcast because they don't recognize that the victory is in Jesus Christ and He's given us the victory tonight. There's a lot of people struggle through the difficulties of life, never entering the prayer closet with boldness because they don't realize that they have access. A lot of Christians that bear their own burdens, not realizing that the everlasting arms are big enough to carry those burdens. It'll help you tonight to examine these things. But as I studied this passage, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 4. And I began to think, what is the difference between boldness and access with confidence? Now stop and think about those two phrases. They're seemingly synonymous, are they not? I mean, what would be the difference between boldness and access with confidence? Boldness, we might say, is in some ways synonymous with confidence. A man certainly will not be bold if he is not confident. And if a man is displaying his confidence, he certainly is being bold. But I began to look at this passage and I began to realize that what we're seeing is two sides of the same coin here. And could I say for a moment that I want us to look at the idea of an earthly perception that we see. The book of Hebrews chapter number 4, and look at verse number 14. And I want you to look at this boldness that's spoken up. Look at the first word in verse 14. It's the word seeing. Denotes looking. Denotes perception. Denotes understanding. If you see something, then you're aware of it. If you see something... Then, then you notice that it's there. It, it appeals to the sense of the eyes, or we might say the eyes of our understanding here in this passage, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. 
Let us therefore, verse 16, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The boldness that's spoken of is the attitude that we are to assume when it comes to the prayer clause. Can I say that I believe that God appreciates humility? But I don't believe that God appreciates cowardice. And there's a difference. Humility is knowing who we are in Jesus Christ. Humiliation is not self-deprecation. It's not talking about how small you are, but talking about how big God is. And humility is not coming with our tail between our legs into the throne room and just perhaps mentioning that God may, in His infinite wisdom, perhaps happen to bless us with some small blessing. That is not humility. Humility is recognizing that in the relative scope of you versus God, that God is able. God is able. Humility is recognizing our inability. Our inability to do anything. I spoke of it earlier. I can't do anything in the Christian walk. Do you know that? I think one of the greatest dangers is that we learn how to live the Christian walk without Christ. We learn the walk, we learn the talk, we learn the mannerisms, we learn the buzzwords, we learn the attitude, we learn the dress, we learn all the things that go along with being a Christian. We learn all these things. But the problem is, it's not the Christ of Christianity that's motivating us, but rather the Christianity of Christ that's motivating us. It's to keep form, it's to keep function. Can I say we have a lot of people trying to look the part when they're not the part. A lot of people trying to act it when they're not it. A lot of people that have a profession, but they have no possession of the Almighty. They have no possession of Jesus Christ. They've made an outward profession. They've claimed they know Him because they know what to say. But at the end of the day, they don't know God. Can I say all the professions in the world will not get you to heaven? I think there's a real danger in us walking the walk and talking the talk. But you know that without the help of Christ, you're incapable of doing anything. Christ said, without me, ye can do nothing. He didn't say, without me, ye can do most things. And He didn't say, without me, ye can do very few things. But He said, without me, ye can do nothing. I'll tell you why our prayer lives fail. It's because we're trying to do it without Christ. We're trying to do it in self-determinate willpower. I'm going to will myself to be a prayer warrior. No, friend, it's recognizing your weakness that unlocks the strength of Jesus Christ. What did he say to Paul? He said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I don't have the ability in and of myself. I don't have the ability to preach. I know sometimes you think, really, you can't even do that by yourself, amen? (laughs) But the truth of the matter is for there to be any effect of the Word of God in hearts. By the way, a preacher is not measured by his oratorical ability. If you look in the book of Acts chapter 2, and we're not going to turn there, but if you look in there, you'll find that just an ensemble of verses was all that Peter had spoke. But when the Spirit of God was on it, that's all it took. We think because of our oratorical ability. We think because we can get up and homiletically and hermeneutically discourse and, and uh, ex- expositate, I guess is what you'd call it, expose all the great truths of God's Word, that that's sufficient. We need to get like the old-time man of God that prayed that his words would be as fire in the hearts of his hearers as chaff, as the Spirit of God worked and moved and accomplished in hearts and tore down walls that had long stood and thought hearts that had long frozen. That's what we need to strive for. No, I'm incapable. I'm unable. I can't lead my family in and of myself. 
I can't raise this child that God has blessed us with. I can't do that on my own. I'm, I'm incapable. You say, preacher, this doesn't sound like boldness to me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm proclaiming my weakness to you. You know where I can have boldness? Seeing then that we have a great high priest. See, I recognize that regardless of my inability, I've got someone that is able. I recognize that regardless of my lack of, of, of wherewithal as a preacher, as a father, as a pastor, as a husband, that I have a God in heaven and I have access to Him and my attitude should be boldness. Listen, our weakness ought to drive us to the throne room, not away from it. It ought to cause us to fall on our face before an almighty God and cry out and say, like Jacob of old, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. There's no turning back. There's no walking away. Nothing less than the sure blessing of God will suffice. Nothing less than the power of Christ is sufficient. Nothing will do to lead my home except the guidance of God. Nothing will do to raise my children but the guidance of God. Nothing will do to pastor my church but the guidance of God. Nothing will do to win souls to Christ but the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing lesser will accomplish the task. It must be the power of Christ. It's the only thing that can accomplish it. My weakness gives me the boldness because I recognize that He is the only place. Like Peter said, where else could we go? Thou hast the words of life. Far too long have we lived without desperation for the power of God. Far too long have we lived with an attitude of apathy and normalcy and and satisfied with the status quo. Boldness. Boldness is not arrogance. Because arrogance is vested in your own ability. But boldness as it pertains to the throne room of God is vested in God's ability. His ability to meet the needs. His ability to answer the prayers. His ability to save the soul. That's where the boldness comes from. Recognizing that I have an audience with God. And I have the ability through Jesus Christ and in Him. You see, my boldness isn't in me because my relationship... I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. My boldness is not in me because my relationship and my actions are not always what they ought to be. If I'm relying on my separation and my uh, sanctification and my consecration to provide me with an audience with God Almighty, then I'm going to fall short regularly. But if my boldness is vested in the person of Jesus Christ, recognizing, neighbor, that no matter where I'm at, He's always at the right hand of the Father and ever living to make intercession for me. Doesn't matter what kind of mess I've made of my life. Doesn't matter how I've failed. Doesn't matter what I've done wrong because it's not about me. It's about who I am in Him tonight. And regardless of where I am, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see an earthly perception. But we see, secondly, a heavenly reception. We have boldness. I told you I wanted to show you both sides of the coin tonight. Both sides of the tapestry. We see that we have boldness. That's our, that's our attitude. We should come boldly before the throne of grace. Not timidly, but boldly. Not because we're arrogant, but because we're needy. Not because we think we're able, but because we know He is. But we see what God's response is. We have boldness, 
but we have access with confidence. I want you, you're in the book of Hebrews, to look with me at chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. just want to read a few verses. Look at verse number 19, and we see this word boldness again. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Let me read that again. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter. That's access, isn't it? If you give someone access to your house, it means they can come in and then go out. If you give someone access to your life, that means you're allowing them to be a part of it. Access equates entrance. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, in other words, through His death, through the rending of His body, through His death, and having an high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We see that God's attitude towards our entrance into the throne room is that He gives us access and that there's confidence on our part in that Access. It's one thing to have boldness. It's another thing to have access. It's one thing to believe that they'll let you enter. It's another thing if they really do. You see, one part of the equation is not sufficient without the other. We might have access all day long. Let me give you an example. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men. Doesn't the Bible teach us that? says it explicitly. He's the Savior of all men. In other words, if you're going to be saved, there's only one Savior. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's not uh, Pope John Henry the 52nd, whichever it is, whichever one we're on now. Amen. No, there's only one Savior, and He's the Savior of all men. But now let me ask you another question. Does that mean all men are saved? No, because the Bible makes the distinction specially of them that believe. So we find that the price has been paid. Pardon free for one and all. There's access. But the sad truth of it is, for a multitude of reasons, the chief one being pride, many men never fall on their knees and call on a holy Savior. Many men never to partake, many women, many children, uh, never partake of the fountain of living water. Many walk this entire sojourn, turning from every opportunity and every pursuit of the grace of God and die and go to a devil's hell for a vast multitude of reasons. The price is paid, the access is made, but they turn it away. One side is not sufficient. By the same token, we may have boldness, but if a way has not been made then the boldness will not avail us anything. Uh, you may believe, and let me give you the flip side of it, there's a lot of people who believe they're okay with God. I always kind of chuckle, and I shouldn't, and it's a serious matter, but, but you know, I've asked people before, it'd be out knocking on doors and so on, and I, I'll ask them, uh, have you ever been saved? And they'll say, oh, I'm okay with God. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm okay with God. I'm okay with a snake as long as I can see him. Amen. <laughs> That doesn't mean I have a relationship with Him. What does that mean? I'm okay 
I'm okay. What they really mean is I'm okay with how I feel about God. That's what they really, that's what they really mean. In other words, there's a boldness there. There's a boldness. They believe that their relationship with God stands on sure foundations. But you begin to probe and to ask and say, well, have you ever been saved? Well, no, I, you know, I, I don't know about that, but I go to church. Well, God bless you. So did Hitler. Amen? Well, okay. My goodness, we're in a terrible place in this country if a Baptist preacher can't preach against Hitler and get an amen. God help us. I don't care if you've gone to church. I don't care if you own the church. I don't care if you built the church. If you've never been saved by the grace of God, it's not going to mean a thing. It's not going to mean a thing. You may have all the religion in the world, but without a relationship, it means nothing. And you may feel good about your lost state, but boldness is not sufficient. You may feel okay with the fact that you've never accepted Christ. It'll make no mind come the judgment day. Make no difference. Make no difference. The question is, is there both? We see for the believer that it's, it's good that we have boldness. But thanks be to God that there's access. Thanks be to God that there's a way made. In fact, I kind of like the way that the Bible says that in verse 20, by a new and living way. That tells me two things. It tells me that something changed at Calvary, and it tells me that the tomb is empty. Because there's a new way. It's not the way of the law. It's not the way of ceremonial sacrifice. It's not the way of Old Testament mandates. But it is a new way, and the Bible calls it grace. It's a new way, and it's a living way. I'll tell you, part of the problem in the day that we live in, there's too many people trying to get to heaven trusting in a dead Savior. Oh, he's not dead, but people believe he's dead. And they think that it's sufficient to believe in and to have an academic knowledge in the existence of Jesus Christ and in the historical event of Calvary. But there's a lot of people, neighbor, and I can name you at least one thief that believed he died, and that wasn't sufficient. I can name you another one that put his faith in him, in a living Savior, when he said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What was he doing? He was putting his faith in a living Savior. The other thief said, Oh, if he... If he can save himself, let him save us too. If he can save us, let him save himself. If he's God, let him save... What was he saying? He's saying he's not real. He's not a Savior. He believed that he existed. He couldn't deny it. He was looking right there at him, but he didn't believe he was a living Savior. He believed he was going to die and rot away in the grave. He didn't believe in a living Savior, but it's a new and a living way. A way has been made. Notice what it says. Which he hath consecrated for us, meaning he cleansed it. Death has been cleansed. You know that for the believer? Death has been cleansed. There's no sorrow in death any longer. Oh, we may sorrow that, that they're absent from us for a short while. But death holds no permanent sting. That's what consecrated means, doesn't it? It means set apart or washed. It's been cleansed. And what did Christ do? When He died and rose from the dead, He blew a hole into death and made a way for you and me. That's what He did. He made a way. But I like this. Look what it says in verse 21. And having... An high priest, it doesn't say in the house of God, but it says over the house of God. That's where the confidence comes from. That's where the confidence comes I've heard it said this way, it's God's heaven. Don't you think we ought to find out how He feels about it and what it takes to get there? It's God's throne room. Shouldn't we find out what He believes is acceptable for our prayers, for our desires, for our worship, for our thoughts? 
But we can have confidence in the person of Jesus Christ that no one is going to outrank Him in the throne room. No one is going to supersede Him in the throne room. And so the the promises that He's made to you and me, we can have confidence in. You can have confidence. Listen to me tonight. You can have confidence that no matter how weak and frail your voice, it will be heard by the ears of God. You can have confidence tonight that no matter how small your problems may seem to your neighbor, they're big to God. You can have confidence tonight that no matter how vile your life may be, that if you come with a penitent heart, God Almighty will hear it. You can have confidence in those things. You say, preacher, the Lord wouldn't want me. I'm messed up. You're who He came for. You're who He came for. He didn't come for the righteous man. He said, I came not to call righteous uh, the righteous unto uh, repentance, but sinners. I came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come interested in the religious crowd. He came for the sinner. And until you recognize yourself a sinner, you're never going to have anything to do with God. You've got to recognize yourself a lost sinner before Almighty God. He came for you, and you can have confidence in that. And listen to me tonight, saint. You may say, God wouldn't listen to me. I'm nobody important. You're important enough for the Son of God to die for. You can have confidence that He hears you when you pray. He hears you when you pray. When you enter into the throne room, there's a confidence that you'll not be cast out. He said, I'll not cast out any that come unto me. And you can be confident that when you go to God, you may say, Preacher, my problem, it's just too small. Oh, I know, I sound like a broken record, but in case you hadn't heard it, I've given this illustration a lot of times. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, a great Bible teacher, occupied the Westminster pulpit in England. Someone asked him one time, they'd have big conferences, and and they'd have a question and answer time. Someone asked Dr. Morgan one time, said, Dr. Morgan, do you believe God is concerned with our small problems? And and in a way that only Dr. Morgan could, he looked at the young man and he said, Well, let me ask you something, sir. How many of our problems are big to God? You don't have a big problem to God. Therefore, you don't have a small problem to God. God's interested in your life. God's interested in every heartache you have. He puts your tears in a bottle. You can have confidence when you take your problems to God that there's an audience in the throne room. And there's a God that hears you. I want you to notice a final thing and we'll close. We see an earthly perception, boldness. We see a heavenly reception, access with confidence. But we see a trustworthy foundation. What does it say? By the faith of Him. I'm going to be honest with you tonight, church. I've, I, I've, I've kind of jumped around that, that idea. And I've, I've tried to nail that thing down. I've, I've tried to figure it out. And I've... I I don't really understand this transference of faith that takes place. I I know that I have a responsibility to have faith. But I also understand that there's some things that take place in the Christian walk that take place by the operation of Christ's faith. Some things that are irrelevant to my faith. Some things that my faith aren't going to affect, but they're vested in His faith. I think it's so beautiful and fitting, and only a divine book could sum things up so beautifully as to say that our entire relationship... You know, that's what we're talking about tonight. Isn't it interesting that it begins with redemption and it ends with boldness and access? Regardless of everywhere else that we've gone in this series, it boils down to the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And you know it always will. You may do things that this world thinks is great. Uh, You may do things ministry-wise that people think are magnificent. But at the end of the day, where it begins and where it ends is, have you maintained a relationship with Jesus Christ? You may have all the accolades in the world, 
But if you've missed the prayer closet, you've missed it. And so it's fitting that we come to a conclusion in the relationship and we have a simple thought that's really been the theme of it all. And that is that every bit of it is that by the faith of Him. It's His faith. It's His relationship. Do you realize that when you got born again, I like that, I like that phrase. I never get to talk to you. You ain't never in here. I like that phrase, Brother Brandon. I like that. I like, we've been born again. That's how country people say it. Country people don't say born again. They say born. There's a D in it. Born again. And uh, I like that phrase, born again. If you've been born again, you've been placed in Jesus Christ. I and my Father are one, that they also may be one with us, one in us. We are in Jesus Christ. So I don't know if I'm saved tonight. Are you in Christ? I just sometimes worry about my salvation. Well, you shouldn't worry if you're in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so you may know a lot of things tonight, but if you don't know that you're in Christ, I believe I get that settled tonight. I wouldn't put it off to tomorrow because you're not promised it. And boy, eternity's a long time. A long time for having just put it off one more night. It's all about being in Him. My relationship with Jesus Christ, though my fellowship with Him may be affected, my relationship to Him will never change. Because it's not about me tonight. It's about Him. I've been placed in Him, and just as indestructible as the Son of God is, so also is my salvation. I didn't purchase my salvation, and therefore I can't give it away, nor can I sell it, nor can I lose it. I didn't achieve it, so I can't do anything to cause it to be taken away. I was bankrupt when He found me, and I'm still a pauper without Him. There's nothing I can do to achieve it, to attain it, to earn it. It's in Him tonight. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. You may have a lot of religion, and that will send you straight to hell just as quick as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Just as quick as anything will. If you have all the religion in the world, but you don't have Jesus Christ. You say, well, maybe I've got Him. No, if it's a maybe, then you don't. If it's a maybe, then you don't. You say, give me an example, preacher. If you used to ask me how I, I know, and we talk a lot about, about a time, and a time is important. I know that there was a time, December 1st, 1997, 7.30 p.m. as a 10-year-old boy, I called on the Savior. But that's not what I'm trusting in. That's not what I'm trusting in. If you were to ask me, preacher, how do you know if you're married or not? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't point you to September 19th, 2009. I'd point at my wife. I wouldn't point back to the day, although I could. But I'd point to my wife. And I'd say, there she is. And I could wave at her. If she's not too mad at me, she might wave back. <laughs> I can talk to her. She talks to me. I love her. She loves me. She takes care of me. I die. I don't know how you've lived, Brother Ralph, these years without having one because I couldn't make it two days. I, not, not, not for yearning. I'd just walk out in front of a bus or something. I'm just that dumb. I die. She saved my life more times than I could count. You see, there's a relationship there. My marriage is not in September 
19th, 2009. Oh boy, I hope to heaven I'm getting that right. If not, I'll get it later. No, that, that's not what it's in. My marriage is in her. My relationship with her. That's what it's in. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ tonight, then you don't have Him tonight. You say, preacher, that's a lordship salvation. No, no, that, that, that's, that's, that's an ownership salvation. That's what that is. That's really knowing Him and having Him. And you can have all the theological dodges in the world to try to get around the idea of the new birth, but at the end of the day, if you've never been born again, then you're still dead in trespasses and sins. So tonight, I, I, I don't know how to end except to offer you what Jesus Christ has offered me. And to tell you that Jesus Christ loves you, that He died for you. That if you don't have Him, you've got nothing. But tonight, you can have Him. He's willing to save you and to change your life, to give you a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I can't offer you anything better than that, and there's nothing better to have than that. I promise you that.